So your 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 company logo, Dion Snowshoes, is the is the snowshoe hair, right? Which in the winter time takes on a, a a white coat, so as to blend in with its surroundings. Well, your flagship snowshoe model, the the one twenty one, and 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 more recently the the one twenty, um, has blaze orange adornments, right? Which decidedly do not blend into the environment. Bob, what what was the theory behind uh, using blaze orange to adorn your snowshoes? Well, one is we uh, wanted to stand out, and uh, what was kind of weird is that.、Uh, It really got branded pretty quick,、uh, and then it was kind of the photographers loved it because、uh, when they're shooting, you know, race photos, and everybody's got black and white or you know something on this with the snow background.、Uh, they love just seeing the、uh, color pop off the snow.、Uh, so、uh, right away, we got a lot more photo coverage、uh, than any other brand,、uh, and also too is that. Kind of where when you see eight out of ten people at the front line or in the race、uh, with that orange,、uh, it's、uh, you know it, it makes a statement. <laughs> hey there, podcast listener! If this is your first time here. Welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in lovely Stratford, New Hampshire, U.S. of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you and welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Bob Dion is my guest this week. His name and his snowshoes are synonymous with Northeast winters. More specifically, snowshoe racing in the Northeast. If you've been to a snowshoe race in the last decade anywhere east of the Mississippi. You've seen those orange-tipped Dion 121s, the premier and preferred racing snowshoe for elite athletes and recreationalists alike. But despite how many Dion snowshoes you've seen at races throughout the years, it hasn't always been easy to own and operate a niche business, even if you've cornered the regional market. Bob shares the story of the origins of Dion snowshoes and some of the challenges throughout the years. Well, here he is. Bob Dion. Bob, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. How are you? Oh, pretty good. It's been a little while since you and I had the opportunity to、uh, to cross paths, so I'm、uh, I'm eager to catch up with you.、Um, so your 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 company logo, Dion Snowshoes, is the is the snowshoe hair, right? Which in the winter time takes on a a, a white coat. So as to blend in with its surroundings, well, your flagship snowshoe model, the the one twenty one, and 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 more recently the the one twenty,、um, has blaze orange adornments, right? Which decidedly do not blend into the environment. Bob, what what was the theory behind、uh, using blaze orange to adorn your snowshoes? 
Well, one is we uh, wanted to stand out. And uh, what was kind of weird is that uh, it really got branded pretty quick. Uh, and then it was kind of the photographers loved it because uh, when they're shooting you know, race photos and everybody's got black and white or, you know, something on this with the snow background. Uh, they love just seeing the uh, color pop off the snow. Uh, so uh, right away, we got a lot more photo coverage uh, than any other brand. Uh, and also, too, is it kind of where when you see eight out of 10 people at the front line or in the race uh, with that orange uh it's, uh, you know, it, it makes a statement. <laughs> well, it absolutely makes a statement. Um, and, uh, and, and that statement was quite influential for me. We'll get to that uh, in a moment. So <laughs> I guess what you're saying is you kind of lucked into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of, I'm not even sure how it really came about, but uh, I actually had, uh, you know, the head of, you know, another snowshoe company and uh, top rep for another different snowshoe company that uh we were at an event and they basically said oh your marketing guys are geniuses <laughs> <laughs> right and you were just kind of wringing your hands thinking to yourself of course right. they are yeah, yeah right of yeah. course they are well sometimes oftentimes in business uh it, it's equally important to be lucky than it is to be really well thought out yep. um uh bob for the for the listener who doesn't know bob dion and dion snowshoes why don't you introduce yourself uh, yeah, um, Bob Dion, uh, ooh, been running for probably 40 years or better, uh, and, uh, trails, roads, pretty much, uh, you know, anything, uh, uphill, downhill, uh, trails, ultras, uh, you know, even track. So, uh, yeah, I just, you know, kind of loved running and basically, uh, if a little is good. You know, a lot is better and too much is just right. And um, yeah, talk a little bit about uh, uh, and, we'll, and we'll we'll talk more about it, but talk a little bit more about uh, uh, Dion Snowshoes and, and, and your, your business. Oh, probably uh, 25 years ago or so, uh, being a trail runner, uh, I would go out and try to run trails in the winter and you pretty much couldn't unless it was a snowmobile trail. Uh, but a buddy of mine, uh, Ed Alabozic, uh told me that, no, they're going to run, you know, Savoy four-miler, you know, in January and uh, on snowshoes. So I said, well, you know, kind of, okay, great. And uh, he started a little snowshoe series with, you know, two races, then four. Um, but... For me in the winter, that was my mileage time where you know, I just go out and run, you know, four to six hours, uh, usually on the snowmobile trails. And uh, after a year or two, I decided to uh, go to one of his, you know, snowshoe events and see what it's all about. And uh, so I showed up and they had loaner snowshoes. From, uh, yeah, I don't remember the company, but it was... Uh, first come first serve and you only had like five pair and I ended up with these, you know, 30 inch, you know, <laughs> snowshoes. Uh, and then there was this kid that had, you know, like the Atlas racing snowshoe or something. So 
anyway, the two of us were just going at it back and forth, you know, breaking trail and he'd trip and fall and I'd go by him and then I'd trip and fall and he'd go by me. And so we went back and forth and I ended up winning, uh, and kind of, you know, okay, cool. But then, you know, I had training to do and races and, uh, so about a year later, I decided to do all four of his races and kind of got hooked on it. Uh, so that kind of started the Western Mass, you know, snowshoe series. And, and it amazingly, it really took off since then. Uh, but it was brutal. We had to race uh, like every other week. Uh, the snowshoes weren't made for racing, even the racing snowshoes then. It's basically these companies... Uh, just took a pair of snowshoes and made it smaller and said it was a racing snowshoe. Uh, so we ended up with banged up bloody ankles and it really hurt. Uh, so you had to like, people were duct taping cardboard onto their inside of their ankles. And, uh, everybody had a technique to how to, you know, what's the biggest, <laughs> thickest pair of wool socks you could wear or something <laughs> to protect your ankles. Uh, yeah, it was kind of ugly. Uh, and also the snowshoes, most of them in the racing size then was 25 inch, uh, which compared to now is, you know, just kind of huge. So, uh, they were just big, they were wide, uh, they just really weren't made for running, uh, which is kind of a little bit of the fun of it. You had to adapt, uh, but it was still, I think it turned some people off. So, uh, so basically, yeah, I, I was, uh had a lot of uh, engineering jobs and in small companies where I would be doing the designing plus the purchasing plus, you know, you know, all aspects. So it was kind of, to me, it's like, damn, I can make a snowshoe. That's how, how hard can it be? <laughs> it turned out, especially for running, uh, extremely hard. I mean, there was, there's a lot, lot going on that, you know, isn't obvious when you look at it. Well, I would think too that um, you know when 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 you when you take a category like snowshoeing, which I mean historically, as you know, I mean people have been racing on snowshoes probably for as long as there have been snowshoes. Now, of course, you know way back in the day they were 40, 50, 60 inch snowshoes, and uh, really, um, you know the the, the early uh, the 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 early uh, uh, models of, of snowshoeing were, I, I suspect, uh, you know, used for trapping and, and people had to, you know, use them in the backcountry. But it wasn't long um, before, and particularly when the, the French Canadians began to sort of migrate south in, into um, into northern New England, that they brought snowshoeing with them. And of course, um, uh, you know, with the French Canadians and, and their migration uh, into northern New England, um, snowshoe festivals would winter carnivals would pop up and there would be, there would be sprint races, uh, right. Early, early, early on. But again, those snowshoes and those snowshoe models were, uh, were huge, but there, but, but there was a, a precedent for it. I suspect that, um, as you go from, from recreational backcountry snowshoes to smaller, lighter weight snowshoes, um, that there's a, there's a balance between durability and, and, and lightness, right. How heavy the snowshoes are. Right. right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, 
at least in part to separate yourself from the competition. You want a snowshoe that athletes can put on their feet and run really fast. Well, those generally speaking, I mean, it's not, not, not just the, the, the surface area, but also the lightness. But again, we, as you shed weight, you also shed some durability. Did you find Bob that there was, that there was that sort of balance that you had to work through between the, 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 the weight of the snowshoe and the durability of the snowshoe? Uh, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing. And also, uh, ideally you use snowshoes on snow, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. Sure. but especially in new England, uh, and also in, in a race, even when there's good snow, uh, there's road crossings on pavement. Uh, the other issue is that old school was, if you weigh a hundred pounds, you need this size snowshoe. If you weigh 200, you need this size. Uh, but in racing, everybody, no matter what they weigh, you can get a 250 pound guy. That's really fast or, you know, just strong on a 21 inch snowshoe <laughs> on rocks, you know, and road crossings, just beating the hell out of these things. Uh, so yeah, it's, and also people don't want to pay any money. <laughs> so now you've got, uh, yeah, I heard somewhere you can have, uh, lightweight, you can have inexpensive, uh, or you can have durable, uh, it's a good point. Pick, pick two. Yeah. It's a really good point. In fact, for me, um, uh, and I, I still run, uh, on snowshoes in the wintertime. That's, that's my preferred training modality, even though I don't race much on snowshoes anymore. I do enjoy running in snowshoes. I think it, I think it, it confers tremendous amount of fitness benefit. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit, but um, what I ended up doing, and I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect there were a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, snowshoe racers did this too, is uh, I invested in uh, in a pair of the one thirty twos. your, um, and, it, and you'll, you'll speak to this more eloquently than I will, but um, the aluminum frame version, um, uh, I, I, I considered the, the the 132 model like my training snowshoe. Those are the ones that I would take out and I, I would beat up a little bit on variable terrain. I would save my racing snowshoes for racing. Um, so not only would I, uh, would I, would I lessen the, uh, the, the wear and tear on my, my racing snowshoes, but training in the 132s, which are slightly heavier uh, than, than, than the 121s, Training in the 132s, when I would put on the racing snowshoes, they would feel lighter to me. Um, was that a happy accident as well, Bob, in, in terms of the, the, the 132 model uh, and the 121 model um, and, and the difference between those two? Well, what happened there was when we started uh, making snowshoes, uh, snowshoes were all using three-quarter inch diameter tubing. And... Uh, so even when they went down to the smaller ones, it was three quarter inch. Uh, what we did was we started to, instead of having three quarter inch with a five eighths inside of it, joining the, the front and the back, uh, what we did was decide to have the front all five eighths. So that scaled down. Uh, lost the video here. Yep. I got gotcha. you. Okay, uh, the 132, we, we kind of scaled it down and then we decided, okay, well, let's take, instead of having three quarter with five eighths, let's try half inch 
with five A's. So we just gradually kept kind of pushing that limit. Uh, and then when we went down to like uh, five A's, the other company started dropping down to five A's. Uh, we went to half inch, but the way we designed it and made the snowshoe, the half inch was joined at the weakest part of the snowshoe is where the hinge is, where your weight and everything's happening. Uh, so right there, we had the five ace and put the half inch where it's not really getting pounded or uh, supporting any of the weight. Uh, other companies started going to half inch and it was a massive failure uh, because they basically figured, well, you know, if we can do it, they can do it. Or uh, partly because I'm a racer, I'm using the snowshoes and I'm designing them for me and you, uh, people I know, and I'm in the race with you seeing how they work, uh, where all the other snowshoe companies are marketing groups. And for instance, so 60% of the snowshoers are women. Let's make a women's model. And what we'll do is we'll make it baby blue or pink or something and call it a women's model. Uh, and just, you know, it's marketing. Uh, so for me, it was, if I'm racing head to head with you and your snowshoe breaks and I made it, you know, I feel like an ass, you know, it's like, uh, and it was time early on. Yeah. Cleats would break, uh, just so many things. And I was even in a qualifier for nationals when the guy next to me had a pair of mine on and something broke on it. I took off my snowshoes, gave them to him so he could qualify awesome. uh, just so he could keep going. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's So awesome. it's like real life uh, design. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah and, and, and we'll, we'll, let's, we'll talk more about uh, specifically about, uh, about the different models and, and about uh, how, how the snowshoes are, uh, are differentiated, not only within your, uh, within your lineup, uh, but also how your snowshoes differentiated from, from, from other snowshoes in the market. But let's talk about, let's talk about how you and I came, came to know each other. As I think about it, um, I think I actually was introduced to your product before I actually had an opportunity to meet you. So um, I'm thinking this is 2007 and uh, I show up uh, to the side hiller, uh, uh, snowshoe side hiller. Race, yeah. right in uh, yep. center sandwich, uh, New yep. Hampshire. Again, this is 2007. Um, I, it must've been um, early, earlier that, uh, that fall uh, in which, I was kind of looking for something different to do in the wintertime. And I don't know, I can't remember exactly how, but I stumbled upon uh, snowshoe racing. Almost certainly um, uh, my, my, my discovery of snowshoe racing uh, was um, as a result of um, the, the, the Western Mass Athletic Club, their snowshoe series, because they, uh, and again, you, you, you spoke to this, the Western Mass Athletic Club, um, they had been they had been organizing snowshoe races since the mid 90s. Right. So this is 2007, uh, like more than a decade later. But I'm just discovering it right in 2007. So um, so I head to Center Sandwich and um, and decide to give my uh, give throw my hat in the ring in terms of snowshoe racing. Now, I wasn't wearing Dion snowshoes that first year. I can't remember. I I had some other some other model on and it was it was a 
it was a, a racing specific snowshoe, <laughs> but it wasn't a Dion snowshoe. Okay. Um, that 2007, uh, side hiller, uh, here are the top four finishes. All right. You ready? Uh, Kevin Tilton wins the race. Dave oh, yeah. Dunham comes in second. I come in third. Guess who comes in fourth? Bob Dion. There were 15 finishers that 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 year at Side Hiller. Uh, Kevin, Dave Dunham, myself, and you, top four. Fast forward 2008. I go back to Side Hiller. Now the field's a little bit bigger. In fact, it's doubled. There are 37 finishers in 2008. Um, top four finishers. You ready? Kevin Tilton, Dave Dunham, Chris Dunn, Bob Dion again. We finished one, two, three, four, two years in a row. Yeah, I remember um, looking it out. <laughs> I remember going back and forth with you. And... Well, again, that um, that was my introdu introduction to snowshoe racing. And, and almost certainly at, at, at that point, um, I began to notice these snowshoes with the orange tips, right? And I'm like, what in, what in the world are these snowshoes with the orange tips? Because it seems like... Um, it seems like the vast majority of people are wearing these white snowshoes with the with the orange tips. And so it wasn't long um, before, of course, I got myself uh, into a pair of Dion snowshoes and um, the rest is history. I, I, I haven't run on 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 a on a different pair of snowshoes uh, uh, other than Dion snowshoes since 2008. Uh, well, well, the connection that I, that, that, that we have. Um, from a from a from a, a, a business standpoint, is this that uh, in 2008, um, uh, Acidotic Racing, the event management company, uh, was born, and our first race was the Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Classic in at Gunstock. Um, that was 2008. That was how we got started in event management, and it was snowshoe racing. Um, uh, and um, you know that. That started a, a relationship um, between Acidotic Racing and Dion Snowshoes. You were uh, gracious enough uh, and generous enough to, uh, to 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 donate a pair of snowshoes as prizes, and and of course you had a loaner program, and which which was just genius, right? To uh, to, to to give these these events, uh, you know, a, a bin of Dion Snowshoes for people to 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 try on uh, and rent uh, for the races. Um, Bob, Bob, why was it important for you and for your company to, um, to support snowshoe racing, not only in New Hampshire, but, but snowshoe racing, uh, more broadly throughout New England? Uh, well, for one thing, it's, uh, snowshoes, even cheap snowshoes, uh, are fairly expensive. Uh, so people would show up with a pair of backcountry snowshoes or whatever at a race and look around and just kind of like, this is awkward. Uh, but they're not going to go out and spend $200 on a pair of snowshoes and go to a snow, you know, there was very few races anyway. Uh, but you show up to a race that costs you, you know, 20 bucks or 30 bucks. And now you got a $250 pair of snowshoes you got to buy. It's kind of a turnoff. Uh, so it'd be like me deciding, I, you know, I want to try out paddleboard, you know, stand up paddleboard or something. You know, it's it's awkward. I'm I'm not. I have no idea what to buy, where to buy it, and all. So just for people to be able to show up at a race, uh, 
have a good time, try the snowshoes, see if they like it. Uh, then they know. They know what to wear. They know what you know what to buy. And, and they find out it's basically trail running in the winter. Same people, same attitude. And uh, days where you're on the way to a race and the weather forecast is stay indoors, the wind chill, you're going to die. And you're at a race. You finish the race, you're in a T-shirt drinking a beer, you know, <laughs> thinking like I would have stayed indoors if you know there wasn't a snowshoe race today. So. Um, yeah, good, good point. I remember um, I, I raced a, a couple of, of Western Mass uh, snowshoe races back in the day. Um, and but but one I remember, um, I, I think it was uh, Hoaxy Thunderbolt. I think that was the race. Uh, yeah, yeah, Hoaxy Thunderbolt. Yeah. yeah um, what I remember about it was <laughs> um, it was so cold that morning that when my wife and I showed up to the event, we found a place to park alongside the road. And as I'm looking around, I don't see anybody standing around outside, like nobody standing around outside. Yeah, yeah no thinking, idea who was there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking, what, what, like what, what in the world is going on? Like it, it, maybe I missed something. And then a moment later, uh, Ed uh, walks up to the car, knocks on my window, knock, knock, mm -hmm. knock, knock. I roll the window down and he said, are you here for the race? Yes. So he said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take your entry form and, and your money. Basically he was doing registration at everybody's cars because it was yep. so stupid cold. Um, and, uh, what, <laughs> what, what, what a great race combination of, uh, of some, of some, some groomed stuff, snowmobile, uh, uh, corridor, if I remember, or snowmobile track and some ungroomed stuff, like just classic right. new England yep. snowshoe racing, right? Yep. Not pristine groomed Nordic trails, a combination, uh, uh, of, of, of groomed and ungroomed. Um, but, but, but to me that, that experience really, uh, sort of exemplified what snowshoe racing was about, you know, low key, low frills, um, uh, but hardcore too, right? I mean, you, oh, you, yeah. you got to really want to be there uh, to be out in those conditions um, at that time of year. Yeah, I won that race. Uh, I don't know if it was that year, but, and it was a surprise because I am a horrible uphill runner. Uh, I basically walk the uphills, you know, just so I can scream on the downhills. And we took off and there are a lot of good runners in that field. And they're all behind me and I'm running the uphill thinking like, I'm not going to walk if I'm in the lead, <laughs> but I really, really, really want to walk. And I pretty much almost got away, but I just kept running and all the way up to the turnaround and came flying down the hill, you know, like full, you know, and I got done. I was like, why didn't anybody go by me? <laughs> and everybody knew that no matter how far back I was at that hut, I was going to, you know, catch them on the downhill. <laughs> and it was like, they just, that was torture. You know? <laughs> was like, <laughs> well, I also remember too, I, and I'm sure you had these experiences with snowshoe racing. There are times in which you get into, um, you know, fairly new single track and um, the, the opportunities to pass, right, are very few. 
And if you really want to take a shot at passing somebody or overtaking somebody on single track, you might have to blast through ungroomed snow, right? For 10, 15, oh, yeah. 20 meters in order to get around. So you'd be, you'd be right on somebody's heels in really tight, narrow single track outside of that single track, you know, could be two feet of snow. You decide to go for it. You start to go around them. You're breaking trail as you're working really hard. You're seeing them just run away from you because you can't you can't overtake them. Uh, again, another another interesting peculiarity uh, of snowshoe racing that that um, not only was physically difficult, but also from a strategic standpoint. Right. You had to really oh, yeah, you, you, you had you had to very precisely determine when you were going to attempt to overtake somebody. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, you probably had that experience, didn't you? Oh, Dave Dunham would go out and like look at a, a, this certain tree, and he'd he'd make a little passing lane at certain <laughs> spots. <laughs> and you know, and they, those the CMS guys would just have the whole course laid out <laughs> for strategy and what to do and where to do it. And he knew every tenth of a mile. Yeah, so it's very 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 cool. Yeah. Um, of course, you 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 mentioned road crossings. I'm going to circle back to Sidehiller. You know, Sidehiller was. Uh, was famous uh, for for that road crossing, right? The, um, um, oh, the town, that the town the, was great. The town. Yeah, the, um, yeah, the the snowmobile uh, the snowmobile club, the side hillers um, would would show up in great numbers, and they would um, uh, they would shovel snow. Well, they put plywood, onto the road. Plywood. I think they put plywood down too. Yeah, that's right. They put plywood yeah. and then they would shovel snow on top of the plywood um, as, a, as a means to be able to cross the road, to get over on the other side, the, the other side of the road from the fairgrounds uh, where, where the hills were, right? Where, 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 the, where the big climb was. Um, you know, that, that race side hiller, Paul Kirsch uh, started that race in 2005. There were 28 finishers in 2005, as, as I mentioned uh, my first experience with with Paul and Sidehiller was 2007. Um, uh, that race continued through 2013. In 2011, um, you know, six years or so after Sidehiller was 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 created, um, Sidehiller had 108 finishers. Uh, that was the that was the apex uh, for for Sidehiller in terms of participation. In that in that six year period of time from 2005 to 2011, snowshoe racing in New Hampshire, anyway, um, really began began to blossom and explode. Um, we we created the the Granite State Snowshoe Series. You know, New Hampshire went from I mean I believe one snowshoe race side hiller in 2005. Um, uh, to I think we had a we had a series of, of six, seven, eight races uh, in New Hampshire, um, you know, in, in, in uh, by 2011, 2012. Um, Bob, what 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 did you see happening in with snowshoe racing in New Hampshire specifically uh, during that period of time, say from 2005 to, to 2013? Did you notice uh, an impact on your business as snowshoe racing began to flourish in New Hampshire? Well, uh, looking back at, well, first at Albozic was like the guy, you know, he, you know, there wouldn't have been a side hiller if it no wasn't doubt. for, for Eddie. No uh, doubt. he started with those four races I mentioned, uh, then that Western mass series kept adding people would come from New York state. They'd come from New Hampshire. Uh, and you'd even had, you know, people from Maine, people from Rhode Island, uh, 
you know, just people came along this Connecticut was huge. Uh, so it's basically trail runners and they knew the Western mass trail races and the area. Uh, but it, they just kept coming from, you know, really big distances and they'd come, they'd race. And so Eddie would add, add another race and it hit another, uh, it got up to eight, 10, 12. And then people would go back to New York state, uh, and put a race on in Saratoga, a couple of them. Uh, and then New York state would start adding races, New Hampshire, uh, the people, you know, instead of traveling the Western mass or they still would, but they'd fill in, Oh, there's a week with no Western mass race. Uh, they'd put a race up in New Hampshire. Uh, Peter Keeney came down from Bar Harbor. He did. Yes, he did. <laughs> he'd drive from Bar Harbor, do a race. And then he went to Bar Harbor and then put a race on. And then R Maine had two series, uh, two snowshoe series there. Uh, and then it got even to where uh, Ontario, uh, Derek Spafford put on a, you know, people from Rochester would start racing. So, uh, Derek would like do a snowshoe race and then decide to put a couple on. And they, now the Ontario series is up to, I don't know how many races, but it's, and still growing. Uh, so basically, uh, New Hampshire kept adding races, uh, and there's still, you know, quite a few. Uh, but at one point, I think, uh, at the peak, there was probably a hundred races within driving distance. Uh, which is huge because when people started doing like the national championships, uh, we'd be out in Minnesota or uh, Oregon and uh, they'd have, you know, a qualifier and they'd have a race, uh, you know, they go to nationals. Uh, we'd show up at nationals and we had 20, 20, you know, over 20 races just before nationals. And, uh, you know, it was like, uh, it, it was pretty uh, amazing that, you know, you could race. It used to be in the winter, it was training. Uh, but when you got 20 races that you can snowshoe, the only downside I found was I always raced to win. Uh, so every race, snowshoe or trail or ultra, whatever, I want to win it. Uh, so at one point, I was racing twice a week year round. And after I think probably two years, I was so burnt from just like, there was no downtime. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's cer yeah. certainly that's, that's the catch 22 to a very full, uh, bountiful racing schedule, particularly in the winter time, right. I, to your, to your point, um, you know, for, for, for most trail runners, the winter time was their opportunity to, uh, sort of, you know, restore, uh, rebuild, rejuvenate from a very busy spring, summer, fall. Um, now snowshoe racing just explodes in New England, New Hampshire specifically. I mean, that's what I can speak to because I was involved with it. Um, you know, we, again, we, we went from maybe one snowshoe race in New Hampshire. Of course, you could snowshoe race in, in Western Mass if you wanted to travel, um, but, 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 but during the days of the, the Granite State Snowshoe Series, you know, we, we would, I mean, winter is generally 13 weeks long, generally speaking, right? Um, there was a race somewhere, uh, you know, with, within an hour's drive um, in the wintertime for us here in New Hampshire, between, you know, between New Hampshire and uh, like 
South Shore of Boston and Southern Maine, uh, and even even if we wanted here in New Hampshire to kind of get over into into Vermont a little bit, again within within a one or two hour drive, uh, you to your point, you could race twice a weekend in the wintertime. Um, now, um, you know, not everybody obviously saw snowshoe racing um, as overtly competitive, although it, it's it's still competitive. There was a real community vibe to it. Um, and I, I know for me, uh, and, and many of the people that I, that I spoke to during that time, um, snowshoe racing helped the winter go by much faster than, than ordinarily it would. Right. Because well, again, about, yeah, for the, I mean, for a lot of, for a lot of trail runners, the winter time was a disruption to their training, right. Cause their trails were covered with snow or there was, you know, just the, the conditions made it much more difficult. No, we were going to have a logo that says we make winter suck less. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what my experience was uh, during those days with snowshoe racing, because you'd blink and next thing you know, you know, it was late March, early April. And you're like, where did the winter go? Like that was, uh, that was phenomenal. It went by so quickly. Yes, it was competitive for sure. Um, but, um, but there was also this sort of shared kinship, this shared experience that we were all doing something that was really sort of ridiculous when you think of it. And when you step back and look at it, everybody running around with tennis rackets on their feet. Um, but, but absolutely amazing um, from a, uh, from a, a community standpoint uh, and, and, and certainly from a, from a, uh, from a fitness standpoint too. I can tell you, Bob, that during those years that I was snowshoe racing in the winter time, um, I would emerge from the winter as fit or fitter than I was when, when I emer when I sort of entered the, the, the winter, uh, the previous fall, like there was an incredible fitness benefit, um, to, to training and racing on snowshoes. Um, I mean, what, 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 what is your thought about, about that, about the fitness related benefits to, to running on snowshoes? Uh, well, the main thing is if you went out on a January day or, you know, people training for Boston, even, uh, you go for a 20 miler on a Saturday, Sunday, you're beat up. Uh, your muscles are colder. The, the pavement just seems much harder. Uh, it's, it's a work, you know, 20, 20 miles in the winter is really tough. Uh, never mind trying to just find a place that doesn't have the ice and puddles and salt, salt water is way colder than, than right. You know, a regular puddle. Uh, so it was just, it would 20 miles would beat you up. Uh, you could go out on snowshoes for the same amount of time. You're much more tired. You know, you're really, you're working harder. Uh, you get done an hour later, you could do it again. Your recovery. So you, it's, it's kind of like swimming or, you know, cross country skiing where you're getting a lot more benefit, but you don't have the downside. Mm. Uh, well, certainly there, there, there isn't that there isn't the, the, there, there aren't the same impact forces, um, with, with running on pavement versus, uh, versus running, uh, running on snowshoes. Now, of course, the thing about running in snowshoes is, is that the conditions are always quite variable, right? I mean, you know, if you're running on the road, the, the road conditions are not going to vary significantly enough in order to, in order to, um, uh, affect the demand, but snow running in snowshoes is a totally different thing, right? The difference between running on hard packed, you know, Nordic trail, uh, versus breaking trail, you know, in, in six or 12 inches of snow 
and and sometimes even the 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 quality of the snow can can oh, yeah. uh, can and the characteristics of the snow can impact the demand, which which I always found um, fascinating, and I also uh, really appreciated uh, and still appreciate that. As as I said, uh, I still run in snowshoes in the wintertime. I'll probably put in. 14, 15, sometimes 20 hours of running in snowshoes in the wintertime. Uh, I think it's a great workout. I always, uh, I always have said too, that at least for me, and this is, there's no scientific foundation behind this. This is just uh, anecdotally my experience. I think running in snowshoes is approximately 10% harder than, uh, than, than running on trails um, in, in, in a pair of trail shoes. Now, again, that's, that's unscientific. Um, but, but that's, that's the formula and that's the calculus that I typically use, um, uh, is that when you think about the demand of running in snowshoes, uh, so you, to your point, you, you can get a little bit more bang for your buck without, without the same physical demand, pounding demand, impact demand. That doesn't mean that running in snowshoes is easy. <laughs> it is anything but easy. Um, but it's also fairly easy to accommodate to, right? I mean, I always found that, um, uh, you know, when when people would would relate to me the experience of how hard it was to run in snowshoes, my question to them always was, "Well, how often are you doing it?" Well, I do it maybe once a winter time. Well, obviously, if you're only running in snowshoes once a winter, it's going to always feel hard. Um, but but don't you think, Bob, that that with with some consistency with running in snowshoes in the winter time, it becomes easier, but not easy. Well, one is it's like running at altitude. If you go out at 10,000 feet once a year, it's going to really hurt really quick. Uh, but if you're doing it often or you live there, you, you know, you adapt, you know what to expect. Uh, but the other, the other thing that's weird with, uh, all right, if you take a five minute miler on the roads, uh, and then a six minute miler and then a 10 minute miler, the five minute miler is just going to keep pulling away. Uh, the 10 minute milers, pretty far back uh you get on snowshoes the five depending on the co conditions the five minute miler is slowing to a 10 and all the five minute milers are packing the trail so the 10 minute mile guy is still doing a 10 <laughs> and to give you another my that first race i did okay uh it was a four mile okay uh dave dunham did it and i think it was 40 minutes uh i did it a year later and i think i did it in like let's say 30 yeah and then uh lee schmidt did it in like 20 uh you know it's just and it was the snow conditions you know it had nothing to do with who was faster or any you know just it's there's a race i put on in uh in reedsboro where i live uh, Dave Dunham, it was a 5k. I think Dave Dunham won it in 25 minutes or, you know, or no, let's like, like say 40 minutes, uh, whatever it was. I took down the markers faster <laughs> after the race <laughs> because a hundred something people packed this 5k, you know, where yes. he, they were breaking two feet of snow so and they were just working. And it was so funny because I just went out, took ran out just taking markers down <laughs> faster in the winter. It's so, so true. It's so yeah. true. And, 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 uh, you know, I had a similar experience two years ago. Uh, I, I raced down in Salem, Mass. 
uh, Salem Green mm-hmm. or Salem Greens. That um, was the largest snowshoe race in the country one year. Okay. Well, I don't know if I was there that year, but yeah. what I do know is that I had been racing and training on snowshoes for a handful of years. Now, I won't mention this athlete's name because I, I don't want to. I don't want to embarrass him because it was probably uh, it, it probably wasn't his finest moment. But this this other guy who I knew um, was a was a top notch. Uh, road runner, trail runner. I mean, this guy, I was probably, I wasn't within 10 or 15 minutes of this guy on, on any trail race that we ever did together. Um, he didn't run on snowshoes. In fact, I think this might've been this first time on snowshoes. <clears throat> well, I beat him. Now, I, again, I wouldn't have been 10 or 15 minutes uh, 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 within his finish time if it was a trail race, but I finished ahead of him uh, in this snowshoe race. Now, I, I think it had less to do with absolute fitness and more to do with specific fitness, right? Um, and experience being on snowshoes. So, um, and, and, and that was a really interesting, interesting experience for me too, because what it, what it, that, that, that experience suggested to me that, um, uh, that, that, that there were some characteristics about snowshoe racing performance that went beyond just say VO2 max, right? That, um, that, that snowshoe racing, there was a strength component to it. Um, there was, um, uh, there was a psychological component to it as well, because again, you know, Bob, um, <laughs> in, in, in just about any snowshoe race that I've ever done. And I suspect you too, um, the first five minutes of a snowshoe race, it feels like your heart is going to explode and it doesn't feel like it's sustainable. But with experience, knowing that you can work through that, mm-hmm. you don't back off. You just continue to lean into it. Um, I, I mean, did did you ever have any any experience like that where 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 you finished ahead of somebody that you might not have been ten or fifteen minutes? Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure if it's I'm not sure if it's technique or like you said, just that you know what to expect uh, and deal with it. Uh, but I do think even overall, when I've seen people, there's there's people I know that aren't within maybe a minute, a mile of me on a trail. And for some reason, for some reason, uh, they'll kick my ass on snowshoes. <laughs> right. And it just, I don't know if it's the <laughs> technique, the knee lift or something like that, or if it's just, uh, I just never figured it out, uh, which is when, when I started, and you probably uh, have seen this, probably 90% or better of the snowshoe racers were trail runners. And then through the years, it was bikers and triathletes started just beating everybody to death you know <laughs> it's like yeah, good point. and for triathletes like amber uh yeah. uh you know it's triathletes just kind of totally changed and you know notched up the snowshoe racing <clears throat> yeah it's a good point and and um yeah I, I mean i'm not i'm not sure that i really fully ever understood what the what the important uh, performance characteristics were uh, of, of of some of the top-notch snowshoe racers Be- because again you know you you'd show up to a race and you'd kind of size up the field right but but you'd be you'd be making these determinations about who you might beat and who you might lose to based on your experience with them on trails but that didn't necessarily always translate to the snow 
I do think there was a, I do think that there was a technique component to it. Um, I eventually figured out that, um, again, only through experience that, um, you, you couldn't fight the snow. As soon as you started fighting the snow and fighting the conditions, it just made everything seem exponentially more difficult. And I would, I would, I would coach this, uh, and teach this to my athletes who snowshoe raced to relax when the conditions get really gnarly mm -hmm. rather than fight it, relax and think about floating over the snow. Even, even if you're literally not floating over the snow. Um, I do think that, I do think that there was a, that there, there was a technique component to it. Clearly there's a huge fitness component to it as well. Bob, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about the two national championships that were that were held in Vermont that I'm aware of, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Prospect Mountain, uh, the, the little ski area uh, in just outside of Bennington, Vermont. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Prospect Mountain, just outside of Bennington, Vermont, uh, hosted the U.S. Snowshoe Championships uh, in 2014 and 2018. Tim Van Orden. Uh, snowshoe racing legend uh, here uh, in the area. Good friend of yours, I know. Uh, friend of mine as well. Uh, Tim Van Orden was the uh, was the host, the race director um, those two years. Um, 2014, 2018. Um, 2014 at the time, and and again, you'll help me to understand the, the historical significance of this. But um, 2014, that race. Uh, 400 or so participants, yeah, pretty much, perhaps yeah. the largest, uh, us championship oh, up to but, that yeah. point. Does, does, does that still stand as the largest from a participation standpoint, us snowshoe championship in history? Yeah. Uh, pretty sure. I don't think anything's come close. Uh, and also as farther West you go, it kind of drops off. Uh, well, that, and that's a good yeah. point too. I, I, I want to talk about that and, and get your thoughts about that. Um, of course, you, 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 and, and Dion Snowshoes uh, has been involved in 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 U.S. the U.S. Snowshoe Championship for uh, 13 years or so now. So, uh, or or maybe even a little bit longer than that. But um, you you certainly were involved in the 2014 and 2018 championship because it was in your backyard, literally. Um, let's start with 2014, Bob. What? Uh, what do you remember? What do you remember about that year? What What was the vibe like? What was the buzz like? Uh, what bounce, if any, did 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 your company get uh, uh, from from that race? Well, the big thing there was that uh, Tim Tim is like uh, kind of over the top uh, when he anything he does is just like you know top notch, and uh, partly he knows the sport. Uh, but he's also like all or nothing kind of, you know. Uh, so he really did a good event. Uh, I remember the uh, get together uh, on the Friday at the uh, art center, uh, which a lot of people, you know, it was strange because you're in a museum and everybody's walking around and, you know, it's basically a bunch of like trail runners and snowshoe, you know, everything in this museum <laughs> and they're stretching, leaning against the wall <laughs> and, uh, you know, changing clothes and on, on the floor. And, uh, and then there was, uh, some really good food, uh, from all the local restaurants. Uh, so it was a, you know, great, you know, social event. Uh, and the race itself, uh, especially people from out of, you know, from out, west or anywhere uh most places even international uh 
the people international uh racers they they're used to wide groomed trails you know it's not even really that hilly and, and when it is you're still on a 10 foot wide groom packed hard uh it's basically a track race uh tim laid out the gnarliest nastiest it was wide in spots where you could pass and then the single track uh especially with that many people you know there was probably f a five feet of snow in the woods and there was a trench and you basically couldn't, you couldn't get out of that trench. Uh, and the more people, the farther back you were, the more people that packed it, the deeper the trench kept getting. True. Uh, and then at the end, he had that slalom on his wide downhill <laughs> ski trail That's right. with, with flags and cones, just <laughs> switchbacks one after another. Right. And it was just great to watch. Uh, it was a you know, great event. Um, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> I, I, you, you must've been proud, uh, to, to see, <laughs> uh, how many yellow, excuse me, blaze orange tipped snowshoes, uh, that were, that were in that field. Uh, you must've had, I don't know. I mean, certainly upwards of 50% of the field were on Dion snowshoes. Do you think it was higher than that? Uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, but what I didn't like is you mentioned that we well basically we support still uh national championships snowshoe all the other brands maybe two percent of their business is racing uh they're recreational they're they're marketing groups uh and there's this one brand that just kind of you know pissed me off especially at nationals and especially there uh we put thousands of dollars into the sport uh you know huge part of it but racing is probably 80 90 percent of our business uh but we do everything we can even when it doesn't make any economic sense uh we'll support races and especially nationals uh but this other brand basically bought a bunch of our athletes and gave them all their gear logo gear so instead of giving money to the sport or to tim for the race or sponsoring or doing anything they put the money into paying people to wear their gear and snowshoes and they just put their guys all on the front line and there was a couple that really you know yeah you know brand loyalty to me you know we've we've got some really good athletes that will not wear anything else, no matter how much you pay them. Uh, but just to see that, uh, you know, that, yeah. Anyway, uh, other well, than that, it was a great event. Yeah. Well, well, despite those, despite those histrionics by that, um, by that other snowshoe company who were, will remain nameless, um, uh, Dion snowshoes, continued to dominate the market here uh in 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 the northeast still dominates the market uh here in the northeast um so yeah i, I mean i wonder in hindsight for them if you know if <laughs> whether or not that was worth it or not um <clears throat> following that that 2014 um uh, championship 
Um, <clears throat> did you see uh, any impact in your business? Did, did, did you see a bump in your business as a result of that incredibly successful event that, that Tim put on that, uh, that, that you helped support? Uh, yeah, yeah, it really helped. Uh, and a lot of it is that probably better 90% of our business is word of mouth. Uh, yeah, we really can't afford, you know, the, the regular advertising and marketing. We don't have a marketing group. Or, uh, so basically it's word of mouth. And uh, a lot of times if when you see, you know, eight out of 10 people in the race or uh, it's, it kind of sells itself. Uh, <laughs> we got, we got worried because the first few years, when you know we had an investor in the first uh when we started out and it was my f former boss uh his thing was if everybody's wearing your snowshoes you're out of business <laughs> you know <laughs> you know i've heard you say that it's, yeah it's it's kind of like okay all all the people i know you know most of them are wearing our snowshoes now who are we going to sell to uh or if you know but what we saw was at the first race of the season, 60% had our snowshoes. And then by the end of the season, it was probably 80%. Uh, and they were like, okay, well, what do we do next year? You know, we can't live on that other 20%. Plus the other 20% is they've got snowshoes. They work. They're doing fine. Uh, they're not going to win the race. So like, why are they going to buy another pair? Mm -hmm. uh, or you know, they got them for Christmas and they're not going to like not wear them because it was a Christmas present. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why people wear, you know, something that isn't that great. You know, I do that. You know, if I, you know, if I want to go for a bike ride, I don't care what kind of bike I ride, you know, because uh, I'm not there to win a bike race. And, good point. Uh, so. Yeah. Good, good point. Um, and and, and, and we're going to talk about your, your, your modular design here in just a moment, because I, I, I'm curious about that aspect of your business model too, but I want to, I want to, I want to finish the conversation about the, uh, about the U S championships that were held in Vermont. So 2018, uh, a couple of years later, Tim bids for and, and receives the bid for the U S championship in 2018. Um, now, you know, I, I, I suspect, um, Tim didn't, didn't probably do anything dramatically different in 2018 than he did in 2014, but the numbers were down a little bit in, in 2018. Uh, still a very healthy, very vibrant, very successful uh, U.S. championship um, by all accounts. I was there in 2000. I raced in 2014. I didn't race in 2018, and I don't remember why, but I was there, and I, uh, I did help out. Um, what, um, what, what was your observation of, of, of 2018? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and in comparison to 2014, um, not really sure, but, uh, part is that, and we see this with our business is if you have a bad year with no snow or low snow, uh, the momentum kind of like drop, I it's almost like after COVID, uh, you could before COVID, there was a whole lot of races and racing in all sports. And right now it's starting to come back, but it really, it changed everybody's mindset or their, 
enthusiasm or whatever. And I think that's what happened was somewhere in that point, you know, there may have been a lack of snow. Uh, I do know is the, it was the second year was that they didn't know if they were going to have a race. Uh, there were, there was three or four feet of snow less than a month before Tim had the course laid out. Uh, it was crazy how much snow there was and it vanished even for Woodford. You know, it's like, that's, that's, he kept changing the course like every couple days, you know, you're right. Change it again, change, you know, and I think it might've been where it's kind of like the ski areas where if there's no snow in Connecticut, the ski areas, nobody's going to Vermont to ski. 100% correct. So, uh, so yeah, there was, you know, a lot of factors, uh, but even then, even the year with the 400, uh, I can name 400 that weren't there. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) It's, it's like, there were so many people that like, why weren't you there? Yeah. It's a good point. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, 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 it's a good point too. I mean, my recollection of 2014 was that, um, everybody that I knew, uh, in the snowshoe racing scene was there. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was, uh, just, just an amazing, an amazing event. And, and now that, now that you mentioned that I do remember, uh, 2018 as I, as I arrived, uh, at the ski area, um, that, uh, I, I was struck by, by, um, uh, how much less snow there was in 2018 versus 2014. Uh, and, and of course, for us here in New Hampshire, specifically the Granite State Snowshoe Series, um, the, um, uh, the leanness uh, of, uh, of our winters uh, ended up being the, um, uh, the undermining and the undoing of the Granite State Snowshoe Series. We just, you know, snowshoe racing is so dependent on conditions. I mean, you gotta have snow really to, to race on snowshoes. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we just, what we ended up finding, uh, toward the end of the Granite State Snowshoe Series, uh, was that the winters were just becoming less and less predictable. Snowfall was becoming less and less predictable. Uh, races were, were getting, you know, were getting postponed and you know how that works, right? When, (laughs) when early snowshoe races get pushed back later in the season, um, the later in the season, I mean, there's only so many dates left in, in the schedule. And at some point, postponements turned into cancellations. Um, and not that it was a money thing because the, you know, the, the outlay of, of cost as a, as a race director to host a snowshoe race is very small. I, we, I mean, we didn't, we didn't lose money, uh, because races were, were postponed or canceled. Um, but it was just, it was just what we, what we, what we started to see was a loss of momentum and it was because of the winter. It wasn't because it wasn't because of the product. Uh, it wasn't because uh, I, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the snowshoes. It wasn't because of, of what pe- the equipment. Uh, it wasn't because the vibe changed. Um, I mean, it was still friendly, low key, competitive uh, vibe with snowshoe racing. It was just the unpredictability of New England winters. Did, yep. I mean, did did you see that, Bob? In the in, in the early 2010s, did you? I mean, what what was going on? And and and. And did that change um, in in winter conditions and the leanness of winters? Did that impact your business? Uh, yeah. What happens? Uh, well, one is the Western Mass series uh, had a deal also with the state, uh, so people would get insurance, they'd get their permits, and then if the race gets postponed, 
you, you can't get another permit. Uh, and also you lost all the insurance money, the money you paid for the permit. Uh, so these small, flexible, you know, low key events, it just got to be a headache, you know, and a hassle trying to, you know, change, you know, early, the early years was if the race was in Adams at the Greylock Glen, you could move it to Savoy because there's more snow up on the mountain. Uh, so let's go up there. Uh, if it's a, uh, eight mile snowshoe, well, we're going to make it a 5k, uh, you know, you can be flexible, but the state started with the, uh, your permit says this, and this is your date. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, that kind of, that hurt too, but it was because the snow was so unpredictable. Uh, and also you started getting where you went four races, you got 13 weeks to choose from. Now you got 22 races in 13 weeks. Good point. Yeah. When are you going to reschedule it? Yeah, uh, good point. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, completely true. Um, well, let's let's talk about your product. Um, um, of course, I, I'm familiar uh, with uh, with your product uh, because, I, as, I, as I said before, I've been training and racing in Dion Snowshoes for – Oh, geez, I mean, almost a decade now. Um, uh, and um, I, I mean, I can I can espouse and I will espouse the, the, the benefits of your product. Um, but but Bob, what what do you think differentiates uh, your snowshoes from the other snowshoes uh, in the market? Uh, well, one is ours. We treat it like sports equipment. Uh it's not a, like a Christmas toy. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. Uh, it's not like, Oh, if you're a woman, you know, we're going to make it baby blue and, you know, uh, and sell it like that. Uh, basically it has to function. Uh, if you go to a bike shop, you can't go buy a bike for your wife. You know, it's, you can't go into, a bike shop and say, uh, Oh, I want the blue one and just walk out with a bike. Uh, you go into the bike shop, you're going to see the frame. You're going to see all the components and okay. Are you gravel riding? Are you, you know, wet fat, fat bike? Are you, uh, going to road race? Are you going to hill? Uh, you're riding hills. So you have to pick the components based on where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, and you can change that. Uh, you can say, well, I'm not, not going to race or I'm only going to be riding on the bike path on the flat and then start going out every day and decide, oh, I'm going to do a race. Uh, you can change components or if you start riding a lot more hills, uh, change the gears. So there's things you can do with it. Same with skiing. Uh, you can't go into a ski shop and just grab a pair of skis. Uh, you know, where are you going? What are you doing with them? Uh, so it, it matters. It, so we treated it like that. Like you've got skis, you got the bindings and you got the boots and they all, you know, if you're cross country skiing, you got to have those three and they got to be right for you, where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, so, so that was like the first thing. Uh, also because of the whole banged up ankles, uh, what I saw early in my snowshoe racing was that snowshoes were wide 
even if they were tapered tail and they had all these, you know, things for like racing, uh, they were still really wide right at the hinge. And uh, you're still going to clip your ankles and bang ankles. Also, the other brands, the binding was up on top. Uh, and what happens is as they get older or loosen up while you're running, it starts to exaggerate the movement. So the snowshoe starts swinging around uh, and the snowshoe had its own rhythm. Like if you speed up or, you know, the snowshoes had a lag. So you had to like work around that and kind of, okay, I got to speed up gradual because the snowshoe isn't going to respond. Uh, if you, they were, they were also made for wide groomed, snow snow uh it packed groomed snow is like you don't need snowshoes i used to run six hours on a snowmobile trail without snowshoes you slip a little but you know you don't need snowshoes uh so any snowshoe will work in that but when you're doing single track like we do uh uphill downhill twist and turn get to a brook crossing now you gotta like step on rocks to go across the brook the snowshoes got to, you know, do what you want to do. Uh, if you turn, the snowshoe should turn. So we basically designed it much different. Uh, one is that our binding is basically from the bottom, around the cleat, around the hinge, around your foot. So you're laminated in there. So you are part of the snowshoe. Uh, so it's more like having an extra pair of socks on not a snowshoe that's just flopping around and doing what it's doing. Uh, ours isn't the lightest. It's really light, uh, but we're not going to like sacrifice anything to make it any lighter. Uh, but a lot of the reviews question us and like yours is lighter and it's not, uh, but it feels lighter. It's because if you have an ounce or two moving around, you notice it uh with ours there's nothing moving around so it feels like you know you just got an extra pair of socks on well also and, i also i also suspect too that how that weight is distributed probably influences how the how, how that weight feels uh uh right i mean whether whether the snowshoe is is uh you know is 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 front loaded in terms of the weight or back loaded or evenly distributed it's likely how the weight is distributed probably influences how the snowshoe feels, even if the snowshoe is heavier, um, that it feels lighter than, than, than the competition. I, I also think too, and I'm sure you'll speak to this, but I think your modular design, um, for me always, um, was the most significant differentiator, um, as a, as a consumer of your product. Uh, the modular design for me is what is, is what made your product, stand out from all the others. Bob, can you speak to what, what, what I mean by, by, by that modular design and, and why did you end up going that route? Cause it would seem to me that from a business standpoint, it would make more sense to make a snowshoe that wasn't modular. Um, so that when something breaks, you just got to buy a whole new snowshoe. That would seem to me like that would be a better business model. What is modular design, Bob? And why did you decide to go that route? Well, originally it was, uh, for the fact that we weren't sure of 
what was better. You know, there was too many options on what are we going to settle on? Uh, if we go with this cleat, now we got to make three different brand or models rather uh, with the three different cleats and which a lot of the other companies do. But what they wind up with is there's like 30 different models of tub snowshoes and they're all different colors or different components. Like which of those 30 do I want? And, and also the stores aren't going to carry all 30. They're going to pick, you know, whichever ones. Uh, so that was part of it. Uh, and again, treating it like skis or a bike, you pick the frame, you pick the binding, you pick the cleat, you know, and uh, whichever ones you, know, you prefer. Uh, and also we have people that, uh, let's say you're doing a race and then your buddies are going to go up and backcountry or go up Mount Washington or up in the Adirondacks. You can just change the frame, keep your binding and cleat instead of buying a whole nother pair of snowshoes. Uh, but the ultimate uh, for us was if you break anything warranty wise. Uh, so for instance, with any other brand, and I had this early on, so it's before I made snowshoes, uh, you have to find a box that the snowshoes fit in, which is pretty hard. Uh, you'd send it away and it's like $14 or whatever to send it. Uh, and then it's four or five weeks before you get it back. Winter's over. <laughs> so if you're doing a race or anything, you, you need spare snowshoes just for the time that you send it away and you got to race. Uh, if something happens on a Saturday and you got to race on Sunday, you know, so there's just a lot of, uh, things where for us, it really helped, uh, if somebody, Oh, I broke a cleat, which again, early when we started aluminum isn't made for road crossings, <laughs> you know, it's just, and, and the rocks and the, you know, it's just, so, uh, what we would do is, you know, somebody would call or email and say, yeah, I broke a cleat and they're all set to like look for a box or how long before I get, we pop a cleat in the mail, we'll put it in an envelope for $2, send it to them. And they change and send us the broken one. And then we looked at it and okay, we got to like strengthen this spot. You know, they keep breaking right here. So we fix that. And it was every time we, you know, but we get a part in, we're not, we're not putting their snowshoes, you know, like rebuilding them or replace and then putting them in a box and then we're spending the $20 to send back. So no, it's just, and it's also fast. Uh, if you, you do a Sunday race and something breaks by next week, you've got, you know, you're up and running again. Uh, well, I think, I, I, I think it's a brilliant business model because I know for me, <clears throat> Um, I mean, at some point <clears throat> I ended up having, uh, two sets of bindings, right? I'd have the secure fit and the, and the quick fit binding. So I, I bought both bindings and I also had, I also had, um, each of the three cleats in your lineup, the ice cleat, the deep cleat, and then the sort of standard cleat or the regular cleat. So at some point, <clears throat> uh, not only, not only did I have my base model of snowshoe, um, but I, but I, I went ahead and, and sort of upgraded in, in my mind, uh, by, by having all of your different componentry. Uh, so that I could mix and match, I could customize um, my snowshoe <clears throat> to the race conditions. And I remember 
I remember in the heyday of snowshoe racing here in New Hampshire, we, I'd show up to a race. And um, if you were there, I would seek you out and I would ask you, hey, Bob, what's, what's the preferred cleat today? Uh, right. And then there would be all this discussion amongst amongst us snowshoe competitors. What are you wearing for a cleat today? Are you going deep cleat as an ice cleat as a regular cleat? Um, so it was I mean, it was really brilliant, I think, uh, from a, uh, from a from a product standpoint, um, <laughs> because it, it, it gave people. Uh, it gave us uh, snowshoe competitors one more reason to talk about your snowshoes, uh, right? It wasn't just everybody was showing up and, and running on the same pair of Dion's. Uh, there was a lot of mix and matching, even sometimes the binding. Uh, I, I would find that um, uh, that that in the in the deep powder, uh, I didn't I didn't prefer the quick fit binding because sometimes when you know for whatever reason if the velcro loosens up and you get a little powder on that velcro sometimes the velcro won't won't snap back and stick together but if i had to secure fit i'd go secure fit binding um so just just brilliant the, the flip side of it though as i think about it bob is that this modular design um does require some consumer education you get you got to educate the consumer um a, a, about the, the different the different uh, the different options that you have from bindings and cleats, um, was there any consideration? Did, did did you spend any time thinking about uh, how to educate the consumer? And then, what was the importance of brand ambassadors for you? People that were out there at races talking about the Dion snowshoes and helping people understand uh, the, the, the the different options. Um, what, what were the challenges around educating the consumer? Um, yeah, that's really difficult, uh, especially, uh, retailers. Uh, you know, if I went to a retailer and started showing them like, Oh, you know, you can change this and this is how we, they'll do that with skis. They'll do it with a bike, you know, they'll do their, you know, they're fine with that, but they just couldn't wrap their head around. You can change the parts. And I had one ski shop told me is I'm not going to spend 10, 15 minutes showing the customer when I can sell them a $2,000 pair of skis in the same time. Yeah. Uh, so they always had the, you just take it and go, you know, like I want like 10 pair with this, this, and that all the same, but that's not how it works, you know? And uh, yeah, it just, people just kind of freak, you know, a, a snowshoe's a snowshoe, you know, it shouldn't be complicated. Well, it's not complicated. It's not, you got a no. frame, you got a binding and a cleat. It's you not. It, it's, pick it's, pick it's, the one you want. Yeah. It's not complicated. In fact, I, I can, uh, I mean, talking about brand ambassadors, uh, our uh, our mutual friend, Mort Nace, right, from uh, uh, from way out in, in, in Western Mass, Rochester, New York. I remember, I remember Mort uh, posting a little video uh, and uh, <laughs> it was, it, it was a video that was demonstrating how quickly it was uh, or how quick it was to change out the bindings in a Dion snowshoe. Yeah, they had like a contest. And yeah, it was, like it a race. was, but it was really, but it was, it was clever, but it was also an excellent illustration of this modular design. And, uh, and, and really, uh, you know, the, the engineering uh, and the brilliance in the engineering that went into these snowshoes that literally you could, you could change out a binding in oh, whatever he did, 10 or 15 seconds. I don't, I'm, I did, I'm making... I did one during a race. I, I did a, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was a two-loop race at uh, Greylock Glen, uh, and the first loop I had the wrong cleat on. So I came in as like a pit stop, 
you know, at Indy. <laughs> and I changed the cleat and people are looking. It's like, what are you doing? So, no, I need more traction. Yeah. <laughs> that is it's Change the cleat. And I, I, I went from like second or third. I dropped back to like 10th because I didn't have the traction because it was hillier and it was dry powder and all. So I changed the cleat and I went right back up into second. Uh, <laughs> So, um, <laughs> let, 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 let me talk about two other things as it relates, it relates to your product. One, one thing I, I remember being a hot button issue, uh, for you, we'll start with the hot button issue first. And then I want to talk about, um, uh, your competition, but not competition within, uh, within the snowshoe racing space. But, uh, I remember <clears throat> there was a time in which there was a little bit of a controversy, uh, about <clears throat> modifications. Uh, and you, uh, you were, you, you had a pretty, uh, you had a pretty, um, passionate stance about modifying your snowshoes. Again, as I, as I recall, there was a time in which people were doing, uh, you, you'll help me with the terminology is like, like they were mounting the snowshoes to their shoes, uh, like a direct mount. Yeah. Um, right. and there was a, there was some controversy there, right? Because I, I think there was a, maybe a snowshoe brand, uh, that was doing that. And then, um, maybe you started noticing, or I started noticing that people were attempting to modify the Dion snowshoe to do a direct mount. Uh, what do you remember, Bob, about that hullabaloo around direct mounting? Well, at one point, uh, up until, uh, I think it was the, uh, world championships in, uh, Ontario, uh, we were worried because we always pushed the size limit. Uh, like ours are narrower and our one, the legal is 120 square inches surface area. Ours, it was 121. And we always worried that, well, if we glued it or whoever was assembling, if they, you know, made it a little too small, you know, like where's the line, you know, and we're, we're so close to it that we were worried that we had people, I think Kevin Tilton, uh, some, they went up to the world championships and I was like planning to go up and bring some like one thirty twos or, you know, something, uh, just in case. And I was really worried. Uh, but anyway, uh, when they got up there, all the snowshoes started getting measured and, <clears throat> and illegal, illegal, illegal one after, you know, Italians, uh, and then even the Atlas snowshoes, direct mount, can't do that. Uh, you can't modify the snowshoe. And basically, we were the only legal snowshoe at the World Championships. <laughs> and it's like, finally, you know, there was so much. It's like you can't disqualify, you know, three quarters of a field at a World Championship. Uh, you know, it's so uh, basically then they end up just like, okay, wear whatever you want. Yeah, and end up where some people had these totally illegal, tiny little snowshoes, uh, and it was it was unfair, but it was, yeah, you know, like what could they do? Uh, but as far as direct mount, that was a thing because every other brand the bindings suck. Yeah, you know? like even our binding is like it's got issues. I mean, it's like you know that's why we offer three of them. And some people hate the quick fit. Some people love it. Never had a problem with it. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, 
not just personal preference. It's your mindset, you know, like, oh, Velcro. Velcro won't work, you know, but it's not regular Velcro. It's totally different. It does work. Uh, and there are times in certain snow conditions, like you said, that you're better off with secure fit. I've used a secure fit and there's days where I come back after two, three hours and I'm fighting to get out of those things. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. They don't loosen up, but totally agree. Jesus, I'm cold. I'm tired. <laughs> I just get these things off my feet. <laughs> totally yeah. agree. Uh, so, but we don't recommend direct mount for a lot of reasons. One is people, if you do it wrong, you ruin a pair of your running shoes. Uh, if you do it wrong, you got issues. Like if you're in a race, and it breaks you're disqualified you can't run carrying your snowshoe uh you can't fix it while you're out there for sure uh people use their own their old beat up running shoes that are on the verge of death and sure enough you know they rip or you blow out the you know you know rip it off the frame uh and also you've got two fasteners right on the ball of your foot that you're and if you're on road crossings or hard packed snow they're just pounding the crap out of your bottom of your foot uh there's just so many reasons you shouldn't direct mount and with others you don't need to because even with a direct mount you're still up on top of the snowshoe on the frame with two little fat and you're still getting movement hmm. so with ours it feels better and we had i've had people do that they i told them direct mount but keep all your binding and your faster you know keep all your parts and sure enough they go right back to you know <laughs> yeah right Cause, yeah because it there's just there's not a better mousetrap well I, again I, I remember that that period of time and uh uh, I, 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 I do remember you, um, you know, being very consistent with your, uh, with your sentiment about that, about, you know, uh, discouraging people from modifying the snowshoe. You, you, you spent a lot of time and energy and resources into the engineering of the snowshoe. It didn't really need any, any enhancement by the consumer. It was, it was, it was, it was great just like it was. Let me ask one more question related, related to your product, uh, specifically about competition, but not not within the category of snowshoe racing, but, 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 but in a much larger or more broader sense, um, you know, during the time that, that, um, that, that your company, uh, sort of came to be, um, during that period of time, fat biking became, became a recreational activity in the wintertime. I mean, when, 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 when Dion snowshoes was, was originated and founded, Fat biking really wasn't the thing. Now, of course, there was Nordic skiing and there was and there was and there was alpine skiing and people were snowshoeing be before Dion snowshoes came around. <clears throat> but fat biking wasn't a thing. Well, it became a thing, um, you know, during during that decade or so. Um, did you see any any impact on the emergence of one other recreational option for people? Did you see your sales decline, for instance, uh, as fat biking uh, started to emerge? Yeah, I think, uh, well, what happened was we started out, like I said, with almost all snowshoe racers, especially, were trail runners. Uh, then it was a lot of bikers and triathletes. Uh, we lost a lot of the bikers once the fat bikes uh, came along. It definitely, like our bike shops, 
weren't selling many they weren't carrying because for a while they'd be like uh, you know two people working at the bike shop both had snowshoes and this is great that's you know and then the owner would say okay we got to sell these things uh then they'd be selling and people come in and why you got snowshoes well because it's great winter training and uh but then all of a sudden it's like but we got this fat bike so one is the owner would rather sell a two thousand dollar bike than a two hundred dollar pair of snowshoes agree. uh good point it but i don't understand it's when people bitch about your snowshoes are so expensive, but they buy them a fat bike at like 10 times the price. You know, it's like, and I've had people complain about the price of the snowshoes, like recreational. And they buy $150 poles <laughs> to go with the snowshoes that they thought were too expensive at $150. It's so, a good point. Yeah. It's a good point. I And I've always felt that the old adage buy cheap buy twice always applies. Yep. Yes, there are cheaper snowshoes out there in the market. They are not going to last. And you're going to end up spending twice as much money because you're going to have to replace them at some point because they just don't hold up. They they're just they just yeah. aren't durable. Or without, they don't without, work and you put them in the closet, you never use them. Well, that's that, that's also also a really good point too. Um Bob, let's let, let's finish with this. Um Let's talk about the the the, the future of, of of Dion snowshoes. I'm curious about this because, um, you know, as a uh, as a as a as a business and a product line um, that um, that um, that makes a product, um, you know, for a, a a a fairly defined period of time, right? For that 13 weeks every year, that that winter time frame. Um, how do you? How do you how do you maintain relevance? How do you maintain sales? How do you maintain the viability of of, of a business going forward? And I I don't want to get into climate change, although that that's probably there's probably a component and element to that too. I mean we we talked about how New England winters have changed in the last ten or fifteen years, but um, how do you continue to make a go of it with with a business that is that that provides a product? for a, a very defined period of time, you know, a, a winter specific product. Tell me about, tell me about the future of, of Dion snowshoes. Well, uh, early on, it was really much harder because almost all our sales were in the Northeast. And if we have a bad winter in the Northeast, it hurts for the next year because now the, the stores had sold out. So they're not going to reorder. Uh, people that were thinking about buying are going to wait because it might not snow next year too. Uh, so, you know, what helped was we're getting farther and farther, you know, reach. Uh, so with sales, you know, in the Midwest or uh, in the West and especially Canada, we're, you know, really big up there. Uh, by doing that and also with the the website so people can buy you know from all over uh it it helps but it's still very seasonal uh and also we're we all our, our hardest part was perception people thought and still do that dion is a high-end racing snowshoe company and other brand racing snowshoes from China cost more, but people don't know that, or 
it doesn't click. Uh, you can't convince people or change their perception that we're not just a high-end racing snowshoe company. I can go to stores and like, well, we've got this 25-inch model. We had a 32-inch backcountry. Oh, but our customers don't race. Yeah, but this is a 32-inch backcountry model. Yeah, yeah, I know, but our customers don't race. You know, it's like, so we couldn't get, you know, um, but a few years ago, uh, we struggled for a lot. We struggled for, you know, 20 years. Uh, and basically, uh, there were some years where if we didn't sell anything or hardly any, uh, it, it hurt. Uh, plus, you know, with my age getting older, I'm looking at, okay, when am I going to retire? And realize that between the, the company debt uh, and the fact that, you know, basically self-employed for 20-something years, uh, I don't think I can retire. Uh, so it got to where you know, I've got to, you know, find a way to keep this company going. Uh, so what we did was, you know, we sold to a, another snowshoe company and which was much smaller, uh, but a very recreational product and us made uh, nearby here uh and when i decided that i was gonna sell the company my biggest fear was that one of the big dogs was gonna buy us and shut us down uh or move it to china and yeah uh so we really wanted to avoid that so we ended up with a really good fit there was a small brand uh it was a havlick snowshoe uh and he tried to sell to us uh, not not long ago, uh, but the person that bought the Havlick snowshoe and changed it to Nevatrek, uh, we've seen at nationals at you know Prospect and you know different events and World Championships, and uh, she basically was so into the sport, uh, the recreational end of it. Uh, just kind of over the top that that was, you know, ideal. It was, you know, like what, what she wanted to do. Uh, so she, she bought that brand and uh, when ours was for sale, she said, oh, you know, she'll buy it on one condition that I stay and don't change a thing. Keep everything the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the the other ideal part was that we had most of our parts most of our everything you know it's u.s uh material and the parts are u.s made uh that we can't make here uh but we still had to send out and have things stamped uh like the decking and such uh and always stuck where we had the buy a thousand yards of material, send it, get thousands of parts made. So we'd get two, three, four years worth of parts. Uh, and financially that that's hard. Uh, and it also limits what you can do as far as changing anything, uh, modifying, uh, improving. Nevertrek had machines that we don't have. We have machines that they don't have. So all of a sudden, 
we went from 60% in-house manufacturing to 90. Uh, so basically now we're in a new building, you know, it's a, a really nice building, uh, much bigger than we've had before. Uh, so with the new building and all the machines, everything from the Nevatrek brand uh, is over here now. Uh, so it's, it's good. We can change things. As you've seen, like, uh, you know, Facebook, when we had our pumpkin spice model, uh, awesome. we can do that. We can do that. Yeah. Awesome. We can, we can change color. We can change, you know, and yeah, we can have more fun with it. And also I'm not going to lose my house or, uh, if we, if we have two, two bad snow years, you know, it, it's not going to put us out of business. Well, it's, it sounds like, it sounds like that it allowed, um, both companies to be a little bit leaner by uh, pooling resources, particularly from a manufacturing standpoint. Uh, I mean, I, I, I suspect that the, the catch always uh, in a business like yours uh, is inventory, right? And not, 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 not being too flush with inventory. Obviously you want to have enough to be able to meet the demands and, and meet the needs of the consumers. Uh, but to have, have too much product on hand, that's not moving is a burden financially uh, to, to the company. But, 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 but by bringing more of the manufacturing in house, so it seems to me like not only does it provide you the flexibility to be a little bit more creative, but it allows you to be a little bit more nimble uh, from a from a, a business model standpoint too, and 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 not be so not be so heavy on inventory. Um, Bob, let let's let let's let's finish with this. Um, what um, what what do you think are the most important things uh, for the consumer to know uh, about about Dion about Dion snowshoes? Uh, and, and your product line? Oh, probably one is that it's all U.S. material, uh, U.S. made as much as possible. I mean, there's some plastic parts or, you know, pieces that you just can't get in the U.S. Uh, but basically it's, you know, probably 98% U.S. Uh, also, uh, we're not high-end expensive like we're pretty we always try to stay right about in the middle price point uh compared to other uh the the other thing too is uh there's this one brand that their thing is uh they're the world's lightest snowshoe uh and the company's been sold you know a couple times so far but the world's lightest snowshoe was 22 years ago when their 25 inch snowshoe was the world's lightest snowshoe <laughs> and it's just i'm kind of amazed at other snowshoe companies that have a lighter you know haven't really you know come down but i think it's just that they're so small or whatever nobody cares uh but people you know buy the bullshit i guess uh <laughs> but it, it's marketing uh yeah, we got lucky with marketing with the orange tips, uh, but they're, they're real marketing. Uh, they know how to, you know, sell their product and convince people that it's, it's shaped this way because it tracks better. Or is it, no, it's just easier to bend the tubing like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, Good point. So yeah, it's, it's just all these spins on, you know, what they have and, you know, why you should buy it. Uh, so, so basically 
we're we're sports equipment. So if if you're snowshoeing, if you're walking a dog with you know, snowshoes on, then yeah, go go to Walmart and buy a pair of snowshoes. Uh, we treat it like we even our recreational users go out every day as they go out as much as possible and can walk on snowshoes but they're out there all the time they go out for an hour or two uh some of our backcountry people go out and you know for long long hikes and or up in the white mountains or it they use the product uh yeah the racers are just high speed hikers uh so you know they're doing what everybody else is doing just a lot faster uh so I, yeah i guess that's oh but also too as far as racing uh a lot of people think that racing especially when you see a championship uh in vermont and oh we're not worthy you know it's like i'm i i what do you mean go to the national championships or what do you mean go to a race it's like oh my god you know it's like, there's people walking there's people it's it's like any other race or you know it's you don't have to be there to win it uh just go have some fun and get out of the house so I, I, yeah I, I mean i think i think those are those are all excellent points i guess i guess to 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 finish i'll i'll quickly share my experience as a as a customer um <laughs> In my opinion, not only does does Dion Snowshoes have a superior product for all of the reasons that we that we described, not the least of which is is this uh, is this modular system and and the ability to customize the snowshoe. Um, but I also feel like you have superior customer service, as always been my my experience. And sometimes, you know, um, sometimes an inferior product will win out because of customer service. So even if you have the best product, but your customer service is terrible, it turns people off. Um, that has never been the case with Dion Snowshoes. Um, I, I was impressed um, uh, the first time uh, I needed a, a replacement cleat because I abused <laughs> the cleat that I had. Um, reached out to you, and literally within a day or two, I had a I had a I had a replacement pair of cleats, and I suspect my experience was not unique or novel. You didn't, you didn't know me from, from Adam at that point. Um, so I, I, as a customer, I think that's also something that people should know um, is that, is that your customer service not only matches, but I think exceeds the quality of your product. Uh, and um, you know, as far as a business is concerned um, when you can combine a superior product with superior customer service, I mean, that's an unbeatable combination in my opinion, Bob. Thanks. Um, Bob, th thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate you you sharing your story. Oh, glad to be here. It was great. Good seeing you again. Thanks. Build a better mousetrap and the world will be a path to your door. But is that really true? It's indisputable that Bob's modular design was revolutionary in the snowshoe industry. Even if he wasn't the first to do it, he did it better than anyone else. 
but having a unique and superior product doesn't automatically translate to sales unless and until the consumer knows your product. Those blaze orange adornments weren't merely for aesthetics, and his generous support of North Northeast Snowshoe Racing wasn't by accident. Far more powerful and influential than any advertising campaign were the images of his snowshoes on the feet of the majority of snowshoe racers during the heyday of New England snowshoe racing. Well, once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walkable podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check it out. And lastly, remember the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.